Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to a special two-part podcast series that I did with Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn. Matt is well known as the outgoing Chief Compliance Officer at ABM Bev and is incredibly innovative use of data, not only in compliance, but literally across the company to make the company run more efficiently and more profitably. Dan Kahn is known for his work at the Department of Justice, both as the head of the FCPA unit and the assistant head of the fraud section. We have a fascinating art series on how you should deal with the Department of Justice, both in the investigation phase, during the investigation, and post-resolution. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe on the Compliance Podcast Network. Dan Kahn and Matt Galvin, part one. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you are in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat today, and that's how I judge the quality of podcasts. Uh, We have Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn on a joint podcast. So, gentlemen, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. And if I could uh, start out, both of you have uh, relatively recently had some moves in your professional career. Could you tell us uh, what you're up to now? Dan, could we perhaps start with you? Sure. Uh, well, I, I recently, uh, about uh, five months ago, rejoined uh, Davis Polk and Wardwell. So I'm a partner in the D.C. office I'm doing white collar work. Um, before that, I was at DOJ, uh, where I was the, the chief of the FCPA unit. Um, the the head of the fraud section and the acting deputy assistant attorney general over the fraud section. Matt, how about yourself? So I spent seven years at AB InBev, and I'm actually winding down uh, my period as the vice president of ethics and compliance at AB InBev, and picking up a number of uh, kind of opportunities. I'm working with uh, a nonprofit to drive uh, federated learning across compliance technology. I have a research fellowship at Harvard Business School. And I'm looking at a few other opportunities as well uh, as I transition. So, Matt uh, and Dan, I'd like to start with a general topic of do's and don'ts when dealing with the Department of Justice. And before you even get to the Department of Justice, uh, uh, a corporation, uh, chief compliance officer, CEO, board, general counsel, I have to make what I think is one of the most difficult decisions that you can make in the compliance realm, and that is whether or not to self-disclose. So, Matt, could I start with you and ask, in your opinion, what are some of the factors that uh, should go into a decision to self-disclose? Well, it's funny. Like, I I used to, when I think about this question, I think about a lawyer I used to work with, and her view was, 
you do all the investigation, you do everything the right way, and then you decide whether you disclose or not, then you don't disclose. And I think a lot of companies are still in that position where it is a very difficult risk assessment. I know there's a lot of enticement and a lot, uh, and DOJ has done a lot over the last few years to incentivize disclosure. But man, it's very difficult to move all the stakeholders in an organization at the conclusion of an investigation into a posture where you're going to disclose rather than a posture that I'm going to do everything possible to correct the behavior, do root cause analysis, fix it going forward, do everything possible in the right way there short of disclosure. And I think often what it comes down to is beyond that, it's really, are they going to find out anyway? And at the end of the day, that's really the deciding factor, I think, internally to push you over the edge of whether you're going to disclose or not, you know, once you commit to doing the right thing regardless. Dan, if I could ask you to maybe pick it up there, once the corporation's made the decision to self-disclose, what would be the best way to self-disclose to the Department of Justice? And what information would you expect the DOJ would want, uh, at least at the initial stage of self-disclosure? Yeah. And again, Tom, thanks for having me. And, and let me just also, before I answer that, just, just say that, you know, I agree, I agree with Matt. Um, and, and just one additional nuance is the more likely that DOJ already knows about it um, or is, is about to find out about it, the less likely you're going to get credit for voluntarily self-disclosing because they're, they're going to say that there is an imminent threat of disclosure. And so they, they wouldn't consider it voluntary. So uh, I think there are a, a whole host of reasons why it is a very difficult decision, as, as Matt put it, and add to that, that even if you walk away with a declination from DOJ at the end of the day, you have a years-long investigation, potentially, you have an SEC resolution, potentially, and now uh, more likely they have foreign authorities, potential civil resolutions or civil suits. So um, there, there are obviously a lot of uh, you know things for, for companies to consider. Once a, a company makes the decision to, to go in and, and bring a case in, um, at that point, um, you know the, the, the important thing is once you decide to go in, um, you're, you're all in. Uh, and, and so when you do decide to, to disclose to DOJ, the, the last thing you would ever want to do, is have have DOJ or SEC feeling like you uh, you hit the ball at all, um, and so uh, you know my my recommendation again. Obviously, every case is different, but in the normal course, um, you'd be disclosing you know within uh, a day or two, you know, shooting an email off to the SEC and the DOJ around the same time, asking for an opportunity to to disclose. And and if it's at a stage where you don't know all the facts yet perfectly appropriate and fair to say to DOJ and SEC that we don't know all the facts yet, but we're putting a marker down um, to disclose. Um, and, and if you do start disclosing, it's, it's important to obviously disclose um, the, the information that you know to be the case at that point and, and sharing with DOJ what you know. Matt, after you've made the self-disclosure to the Department of Justice, you, of course, internally have the obligation to remediate uh, any, uh, anything you may have found in terms of uh, failure or uh, violations of compliance programs. How, as a CCO, do you think through ongoing remediation while you are continuing investigation after you've self-disclosed? Well, I think as a first principle, if someone's telling you to remediate something that you haven't remediated yet, you're kind of already in trouble. Like you need to be thinking about it as you go forward, you know, and you know, before you get in that posture. I think 
to approach remediation, you know, the, the other side of that coin is root cause analysis and understanding very well what went wrong and what gave rise to the environment where the misconduct occurred and then remediating, you know, that, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, a number of years ago, you know, we had a business operating in a highly regulated environment. You know, it's the kind of environment where to go from a field of hops to a beer where someone would drink, you need somewhere in the ballpark in some states of like 224 licenses. There's any number of kind of low level government contact in that kind of life cycle of your product. There were a number of ways in that life cycle that the incentives of the market were such that it encouraged you know, bribery. It encouraged someone slowing you down, encouraged someone saying, oh, I can make this a lot easier just because the what was being regulated and the point of the regulation didn't really do much and have much meaningful effect on the end product. And so we did a root cause analysis and found, you know, in say certain instances that if you were going to produce a product and ship it internally within a state, the tax revenue for that, you know, say that government official would be benefited. And then if you were going to export it, they would make a lot less. One of the kind of root cause analysis that we're doing is why are we getting held up on our exports? And we saw that. We saw that, okay, okay, the differential in tax income for the person making the decision made a difference. And then we said, okay, what's driving that person? Well, what's driving that person was they had a monthly target on revenue and tax revenue. And what we learned was if we shifted our logistics plan so that at the end of the month, it was domestic sales of product that would actually help him hit his target or her hit her target, the official hit their target they would smooth and let things go. Whereas they would probably seek some sort of, you know, ultra VRA's payment if it was an export project, because that was outside of their incentive. They weren't going to get any sort of benefit from that, from their own tax revenue. To do that, they you know, saw that as a personal sacrifice. And so having the kind of design thinking philosophy or having the empathy for the official, getting down to the root cause analysis, getting to a remediation plan that worked in kind of a multi-stakeholder way, I think was a really good example of kind of remediation that's different from how people normally think about it. It's not just a policy. It's not just consequence management and firing someone. It's not just kind of looking at it. It's what were the economic circumstances that drove the misconduct and how do you fix your business and fit your business around it to operate in the most safely way possible? I think that to me is a kind of a critical way of thinking of remediation that I don't see a lot of um, when I talk to other companies. Dan, if I could turn back to you, uh, during uh, the, or rather after the self-disclosure, what ongoing communications would uh, DOJ expect? Would there be a specific or particular cadence you would expect the information? Is it really not simply reporting, but an ongoing dialogue where you, or rather the department, might ask for specific points or additional information? How does that part of the, the pro- process go? So I think it's, as always, case by case, and, and there may be situations where, where what I'm about to say is, is um, doesn't make the most sense and, and isn't the right call, but I would say, um, as a general matter, uh, you, you basically want to be having that type of a discussion with DOJ and with SEC to understand what they expect and what they're looking for, because again, the, the last thing you want to do is, is end up in a situation where you think you're cooperating um, and then down the road at the end of the investigation, you find out that DOJ or SEC has a very different view. Um, so ensuring that there is an open dialogue about that and, and understanding what their expectations is 
uh, expectations are um, is uh, one of the most crucial aspects of, of interacting with, with the department. And so it, it may very well look like having a regular call if, if you know, DRJ or, or SEC are asking for it. Um, certainly you want to consider whether or not um, you are measuring expectations appropriately. If, if they want to have a weekly call and that weekly call is going to lead to to no update three weeks in a row and, and they start to get frustrated with that, um, it's important to, to lay that out at the outset as to why you don't think having a, a weekly call, at least at this stage in the investigation, um, is necessarily productive because you're still getting all of the, the documents in or, or you're still haven't had an opportunity to interview anyone. Um, but, you know, making sure that you understand what DOJ and SEC are looking for and then figuring out the, the best way to, to get them the information, um, whether it's, you know, a biweekly call, a monthly call, uh, you know, periodically as, as you have updates to share, um, that is, is obviously the key. I love it, Dan. It's like it's the puppy training philosophy to government management. You know, don't train a puppy without a treat. You know, make sure you have a treat or the puppy won't do what you want it to do. Sorry, Tom. You know, I, I just got a I just got a puppy about a month ago, so that, that resonates with me. <laughs> incentives, incentives, incentives. They drive a lot. We're gonna have a quick message from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn. So, Matt, uh, internally, how does the CCO uh, report in an investigation? Do you and would I suppose it's going to depend on a case by case basis, but are you reporting to the general counsel? Is it a more collaborative approach? Is it uh, reporting up to the board of directors or perhaps a special uh, committee of the board, whether that be a standing committee such as audit or truly a special investigative committee? How does the uh, internal reporting of a corporation work from the CCO perspective during an investigation? Well, I mean, from a structural perspective, there's little more important than the kind of like thinking through these sorts of reporting lines before you need to. Um, but at the same time, the more sophisticated the investigation, the more you have to make probably the two most difficult calls as a CCO is who's in the war party, who's running the investigation, and then what's the scope of the investigation. And that's why you get paid the big bucks as a CCO, or you hope to get paid the big bucks as a CCO, is because you're kind of in charge of those two critical decisions. And I think you have to be, there's no, a, there's no right answer to what you're saying, Tom, um, because I think it will depend on the size and scale of an investigation. But let's assume one of somewhat a decent amount of complexity. I would think that if you're only talking to the general counsel, you probably have a problem <laughs> in terms of how you structured your investigation if it's going to have an impact on your business. I was very fortunate that we had you know, a compliance committee of five senior level people within the company. It was the CFO, the general counsel, the chief of corporate affairs, the chief people officer, and the chief strategy officer. They were the ones that would kind of get the more detailed reports at the higher level of how the investigation would go. And then you have to be talking to the board. And most likely in most circumstances, you know, I think the most common structure is you have some sort of dotted line or relationship with the audit committee and you're regularly keeping them informed. And I think that's probably the, the kind of best, you know, 
out of the box kind of reporting structure, some sort of compliance committee of senior management, some sort of regular update to the to the audit committee. And then I think what I see in the market now is an increased interest by external auditors in investigations, an increased level of detail in how they want to be reported to and what involvement they might want to have in the contour of the investigation. And I think there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of tension there around privilege or a role and responsibility in that. But I think that's something that I think the market's moving towards, whether that's a good idea or not. It's kind of an open, open discussion for debate. So, Dan, uh, if I could take you back to a time when we actually had in-person meetings at the Department of Justice, I guess that would be called pre-pandemic. Uh, what should a company expect when they meet in person with the Department of Justice? Uh, one of your predecessors showed me the uh, the conference room where they would meet, and so I have some appreciation of actually uh, uh, what it looks like. But what um, what happens in uh, as you near the end of your investigative phase, uh, how do you present to uh, the Department of Justice going forward? Yeah, and, and look, I, I, I don't think we should take for granted that um, that everything is going to return necessarily to, to all, all of these meetings will necessarily return to in-person. I, I hope they do, and I, I think um, they, they eventually will. But I, I also think that the government, as well as law firms, have, have learned to, to do a lot virtually. Um, and it's certainly a lot easier to schedule meetings um, virtually to not have to account for travel. Uh, but, but assuming that you are meeting in person and you're, you're sitting across a conference room table from, from DOJ or SEC, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the end of investigation discussions um, is, is hopefully not all going to be new. Some of it will be new. Uh, but if again, if if you've done your job throughout the investigation, you're you're having regular communications with the SEC and the DOJ about the development of the facts, um, about the compliance program, and you know again, I, I think uh, a mistake um, that that can be made is to to wait till the very end to start talking about compliance because compliance is is critical in terms of both what the resolution is going to end up looking like, what type of credit you get from DOJ, but also whether or not they think a monitor is appropriate. Um, and so starting that conversation earlier is important. But once you get to that resolution phase, you're, you're obviously arguing to DOJ and, and SEC uh, all, of, all of the factors and all of the arguments that um, are most helpful to you. And, and, you know, I think some of the companies that have um, you know, not not done as well in front of, of DOJ or SEC, certainly while I was there, were the ones that would come in and, and make every potential argument under the sun and not really focus in on the ones that uh, had the most weight and, and were the most credible. Um, and I think when, when companies did that, um, I think DOJ and SEC found that um, much more persuasive and, and felt like they could trust defense counsel and the company. Um, and, and I would also say that especially when it, when it comes to compliance, having the chief compliance officer there, having a compliance officer there um, who really is the expert on that information um, and, and really can you know explain it in the most persuasive way um, and, and the clearest way, to DOJ and be able and NSEC and be able to answer all the questions that they have as they come up. That's really important. Um, 
both because it gets DOJ and SEC the information that they're looking for, uh, but also because I, I think it shows DOJ and SEC that there is there is this person at the company who who really gets it, who's really committed to compliance. They are the the face of the compliance program, um, and that in and of itself is very helpful. What are some of the ways that DOJ would seek uh, demonstration of compliance program effectiveness? Is it simply the data? Do you drill down to test one or two things? Uh, how does that discussion go? So I, I certainly think that the data is is important. Um, you know, DOJ and SEC, they have a, a when I was there, we, we had a, a list of things that we would ask for um, to, to, you know, show how, uh, whether or not the, the compliance program is effective. Um, you know, certainly one one example of that is you know asking for recent risk assessments um, that were done and, and what changes um, were done as a result of that um, another may be examples of hotline reports um, you know the not not just the number and what they relate to but you know examples of how they were dealt with um, from beginning to end including discipline um, and so there's there's a, a number of areas um, but I think that the point is and, and a lot of this is laid out in the evaluation of corporate compliance program guidance that that we put out um, back uh, originally in 2019 and then an updated version in, in June of 2020 um, th- those are the types of things that they'll ask for and and um, they will they will essentially, want to see both data, but also examples. Matt, if I could turn to you now, um, perhaps some post-resolution, and uh, as an outsider looking at ABM Bev, looking at yourself and your, actually your complete compliance team, you were very open in talking to the compliance community about some of the innovations that you made, particularly around the use of data. And you didn't stop when you resolved your case. Uh, you continued to innovate and you continued to use data to not simply build out a compliance program, but at least from my perception, once again, as an outsider, it seemed to me you were driving overall business efficiency at ABMBF. And I was wondering if you could maybe give some th- thoughts on continuing the momentum and how you were able to start, uh, start something with something to perhaps... Uh, help get through an enforcement action, yet use data to, to build out something that became an incredibly powerful tool for ABMF. No, and I, I think that's there's a couple of different phases of that. When you go to the kind of life cycle of an investigation and that post-resolution period, whether you have a reporting period or a monitor, that's probably the greatest kind of moment of power and influence that a compliance officer could experience within the company. And then as that goes on, so I had the benefit of having that opportunity at the same time of a momentous acquisition of a $100 billion acquisition, which also kind of created, you know, opportunity and and honestly budget to kind of do things. And that kind of gave me a moving start. A few years ago, our, our previous head of corporate affairs had this insight to say, well, we should also then take the momentum on all the technology you're developing from that and pivot and have kind of the compliance ethics function be more of an external reputation driver. And that was, you know, quite honestly, Tom, strategic um, to do that. And it's funny, but I, I look back, I was opposed to that at the time. I'm like, no, compliance should be, we should be kind of like almost like corporate and, you know, intelligence. We should be in the dark. No one really wants to know, you know, look at me. I'm not camera ready. I'm not an external, you know, we should be back back room. 
And it was totally wrong. And it was great for the company to be more forward in that. And it was great for the company to take more of a leadership position in that front because we were developing technology that not only I think was great for the field, really good for ABMF, but also readily applicable across companies. And it led to, I think, a lot of moments of inflection. You know, one is, I think this paradigm of corruption as a single kind of bad actor, this rogue actor kind of theory is very misleading because it's never that. It's never a single bad person in a company and a single bad official or agent, right? It's about gray market dynamics that incentivize certain behavior because it's more efficient to get business done in that way in that moment of time. And yes, ethics and compliance is sometimes about doing things a bit harder. Sometimes it's about if you diagnose and do a root cause of corruption itself, it's a collective problem. And so unilateral corporate solutions are not always the most efficient way to tackle this kind of collective economic problem of corruption. Collective action will be. And I think the more companies can work together and collaborate, the more you can kind of reduce inefficiency of companies cycling through compliance processes independently without benefit of another, the more you can break down those silos across kind of market actors, I think the more you can actually go at the root cause of corruption. And I think as the company's program evolved, the more we saw, you know, if my job is to drive business efficiency and if my job is to defect a company, then my job is also to drive reputation and it's also to incentivize collective action to get at these issues to make business work better generally. This is Tom Fox again. That concludes part one of the special two-part podcast series with Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn. I hope you'll join us again next week for part two. I'm also thrilled to announce that the five-part podcast series, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, was specially honored by the Webbies, the top award in podcasting as a special series. The series was done in conjunction with my good friend and colleague, Lauren Steffi, who covered the Enron trial for the Houston Chronicle. And we go through the trial of Enron. Check it out. I know you'll enjoy it. And thanks to the Webbies for the award. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.